We're back in the pub a year later with Mark Blythe, the outspoken political economist at Brown University, which means he works and talks and thinks at the intersection of big money and big power. Your friend's back in your hometown pub in Dundee, Mark, are dying to hear. It's been a year now. The word I hear in this pub, the forbidden word in your discourse, is bankruptcy. When you moved to the United States, Mark Blythe, our national debt was about a quarter of the gross national product for one year. It is now 125% of GNP. The government does not cover its costs. It chooses not to raise taxes, and it cannot stop borrowing. Until when? Chris, have you forgotten all the conversations we've had for the past 10 years about how that's just totally the wrong I remember them word for word. You know as well as I do that the household budget and the state budget are completely different things. Of course, we do know that. Right. So, and we also know that the problem that we've got is that if you look at the whole world as a single economy, you've got two thirds of the world make too much stuff. They're net exporters. They have to sell it to someone else. That would be the net importers, of which the United States is the biggest. We have the deepest financial and capital markets, which means we can supply them with endless amounts of different varieties of bits of paper in exchange for the cars, the televisions, the PPP during the pandemic, and everything else that we get from them. And because their business models are geared towards producing more stuff than they can ever absorb at home, they have to sell to us. That's what creates our deficit. That's what creates our debt. Now, add in the cost of bailing the financial crisis, and then add in the cost of the COVID crisis, and you've got to where we are today. Now, if you go look at the yield on a 10-year bill, which would be kind of the canary in the coal mine for if there was any real debt problems, okay. it's sitting around 2.5%, which is where it usually is. And given the fact that the inflation rate's higher than the bond yield rate, that means that it's actually negative. In other words, investors are paying us to borrow our money. So let's not even talk about this stuff because it's all rubbish. I understand. And your view, which was the Biden view, seemed to prevail in the debt ceiling argument. I'm also thinking of two things, though, Mark, including things you said, specifically that the United States is bankable as long as the dollars we print are still the world's currency and as long as China and the rest of the world keep buying our treasury bonds. But something seems to be happening in the fortunes of the dollar. Among other things, the Saudis and the Chinese have figured out how to trade barter back and forth in goods without using the dollar. How secure is that dollar? Well, there's no doubt that other states would like to get away from this. What became the real canary in the coal mine, that's twice I've said that so far, uh, was when we decided to freeze Russian uh, reserves. Because essentially what we did then was we said, you know that you have your own independent foreign reserves? Yeah, they happen to be denominated in dollars? Yeah. Okay, we don't like what you're doing, so we're going to basically freeze access to them. So in other words, your savings are not your savings, and the United States can do that to you. So if you're an actor that's on the bad side of the United States, and there's a lot of them out there, that basically said, you know that dollar thing that you had? Right. It's not as secure as you think it was. So there's lots of reasons for them to try and get out of this. Here's the fundamental problem, though. If you keep trying to get out of this, you butt up against the following limit. There isn't enough other stuff out there you can buy instead of the dollar. There aren't enough euros because, guess what? The eurozone's a net exporter, so it earns more than it puts out. China, if you've got a problem with the United States in terms of rule of law, how do you think you're going to be holding a 10-year Chinese bond when Xi turns around and says, yeah, sorry, we don't like capitalism anymore, it's over, you don't get your money back? 
there just isn't enough and the stuff that you can buy is itself more risky than the dollar so until you get over that fundamental constraint invent something new which was what the whole hope of crypto was right but that right. crashed and burned as well for reasons we can talk about you just can't get away from this damn thing now is this going to be true forever no nothing ever lasts forever but the notion that basically saudi arabia and china and brazil swapping bits of paper around amongst their own bits of paper is significant it kind of ignores one thing let's assume that the brazilians trade with the saudis and then they get some what saudi currency back well what would you do with the saudi currency which is probably less convertible more volatile harder to get etc Okay, what are you going to buy from them apart from oil? More and more oil? So essentially, you've got a problem. With dollars, you can buy lots of other things. If you accept another currency as payments, you're probably going to have to turn that into dollars. You just can't get away from it. I think the folks in the pub are feeling a little bit confirmed in their, what will we call it, latent insecurity. But there's another thing I keep remembering on this question, and that is asking Simon Sharma, the historian, about overextended empires and when comes the end? And he said, Chris, bankruptcy. It's not that they lose militarily in war. It's that they run out of money to pay for their overextended power. Are we anywhere near that peril? Well, you're 25%. The U.S. is 25% of global GDP. It's only 300 million uh, people. If you add together the BRICS, especially an extended concept of the BRICS, then you've actually got a larger slice of the world economy. But it's a much poorer slice of the world economy. So, you know, are they bankrupt yet? Well, they're bankrupt when they find something else to hold other than dollars as their savings asset, and there's nothing there just now. Mm. So, you know, we just keep coming back to this point, right? Unless you invent multi-trillion dollars of globally acceptable new money that is not denominated in dollars that everybody's willing to hold, you're still stuck. Interesting. Another question sort of closer to home, everybody's home, and that is, under the general heading of economic headaches that we don't understand. American cities are said to be in peril. San Francisco, maybe the American's favorite city, is the best example since COVID. But there are other beloved cities out there too. Boston's not immune. The point is that they're getting so expensive, but they're also emptying out. Oh, I can't really help you on this one, Chris. I don't know anything about this stuff, really. I mean, is it dying? Is it not? I don't know. I mean, the weird thing about Americans is they have a very, very transactional relationship to their cities. Let's think about Detroit. Detroit was one of the richest cities in the country in the 1950s and the 1960s. Then it completely collapsed internally with the hollowing out of the Midwest. Now it's kind of maybe coming back to a shadow of its former self. People move mm. all the time, right? I mean, if you think about it, before we had if you will, the collapse of what I've called elsewhere the Carbon Coalition that was based around kind of the auto industry in the Midwest and all the rest of it. There were no globally important cities. You didn't have, apart from possibly New York, right, ludicrously high rents in every globally connected city. You didn't have this kind of residualization of all the expensive stuff to the coasts, whether it's for basically movie software and tech on the West, whether it's for insurance mm. and real estate and finance in the Northeast, right? 
I mean, think about the fact that Bethesda, Maryland, which basically exists entirely off of transfer from the federal government, is now, I think, the fifth most expensive district in the country. So, you know, something's got seriously out of whack with this stuff. Now, at the end of the day, if these things become so expensive and we start to work from home and suddenly it turns out that paying like ludicrous amounts of money for seriously expensive downtown office buildings in London and San Francisco, etc., really isn't worth it anymore, then guess what? Hmm. Things will change. And also, you know, the thing about moving south, as many people are doing from these northern cities, is, you know, the real estate, at least until now, till everybody tries to do it all at once, is a lot cheaper. You can build easier, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Now, the downside for this, for example, is Texas, right? I mean, a lot of people are moving to Texas, but you now have 100 days a year that are over 100 degrees, and that's hmm. only going to get worse. So to the extent that this is like, you know, some simple story, right? I mean, the homelessness story is very interesting. Yes, it's absolutely true that liberal progressive cities are basically more relaxed on this issue. And as a result, they've got huge populations in these environments. They don't okay. then have the resources or the wherewithal to actually solve the problem. So it then becomes something which divides the city against itself. Yeah, all of that's going on. But where it's trending, I have no idea. Mm. We don't talk about urban policy anymore the way we used to, say in the Johnson era, and Nixon for that matter. Uh, does anybody police this zone, people coming and going, populations rising, inflation, race, drugs? Who's watching? Well, I mean, we're all watching, but in terms of who's in charge, no. I mean, it's just another example of when you kind of hollow out state capacity and decide everything through markets. Then essentially there is a market solution to extreme inequality. It's called poverty and homelessness. Hmm. That's what you get if you don't do anything else. And it's not a uniquely American story. I was just in London. There's serious problems with that in London. There's lots of these issues cropping up all around the world. Where do you see it? What do you notice in London? Well, exactly the same thing. There's homeless people everywhere. There's a state of mm. decay in the city. There's a desire to get out that things are too expensive. Broken Britain, nothing works, etc., etc. They have mm. very, very high inflation and extremely low growth. Mind you, after 12 years of complete Tory incompetence and, and misconduct, it's hardly a surprise. Is a political movement gestating in this kind of anxiety? Well, there is, but unfortunately, it's all on the right. You probably noticed this. I know, it's strange. Right. Well, it is and it isn't, right? I mean, who's speaking, not for the homeless, but for the people who worry about being homeless, for the working class, for poor people, the precariat, as no we say. One. That's not what the conversation's about. The conversation's about Donald Trump. Oh. The conversation is about the fact that liberal cities are broken and don't work and people are moving away from them, that the homeless problem is a mm. self-inflicted wound that these liberals can't cure. That entire ideological area has been completely captured by the right. And they've got millions of people and billions of dollars ramming that message home all the time. The 2024 election is going to be the most consequential election in American history. Explain that. Well, I mean, just on the surface level, right? You've got a guy who last month was found guilty in a civil trial over rape and his vote numbers went up. Just think about that for a minute. Take a breath and think about that, right? That that's actually possible. He's maintained through everything that the election was stolen despite any and all evidence to the contrary. It was just a narrow victory, because we always have narrow victories, but never mind. You keep that going. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why is this guy storing secret documents in the bathroom and all the rest of it? Well, is it possible that essentially he's just turning himself into a giant martyr figure? 
that they are out to get me. I mean, let's face the facts. I mean, remember the Mueller inquiry? Remember everything? He didn't get a minute's peace yeah. the whole time he was president. So from his point of view, there is a deep state and they are out to get him. And there's all these different trials and all these different charges, whether it's about January the 6th and starting a riot, whether it's uh, trying to find votes in Georgia, whether it's taxes in New York, uh, whether it's the one that he's currently facing in Miami over secrets. This is Al Caponing the guy. This is basically you'll eventually get him on something. Now, there's no doubt about the fact that he, like, he did stuff. But let's think about why he would do all this stuff. He would do all this stuff in part because it just keeps it going. It shows that he is constantly prosecuted, constantly persecuted by the people that refuse to allow him, the People's Tribune, to come back to his rightful place as President of the United States. And that's what he's doing. And he has got his people wired up. He is still ahead in the polls over Biden. And the, the Democratic establishment and the East Coast establishment <laughs> have just got their head in the sand about this fact. I'm tearing my hair. What in the world do we need in the way of analysis, psychoanalysis, economic analysis, social analysis to explain the reign of not only nonsense, a kind of absurdity? Well, it's an absurdity so long as you put yourself firmly within the world that we inhabit and think that everybody else is walking around in a fog of error. From their point of view, we're a self-appointed elite that does things like talk about misinformation, which is basically, as far as they're concerned, their opinions. Right? We're the people who invented cancel mm. culture. You say anything that's controversial, you don't get to speak anymore. We only talk to ourselves and our superannuated jobs and our expensive universities. We're completely detached and cut off from the lives of millions of ordinary Americans. They hate us as a class. Why isn't that clear? Mm. Why? It's dead simple. We've run off with all the loot. It's really straightforward. Look, here's a paper. Everybody should go find this paper. And it's called Trends in Income 1979 or 1978 to 2020. It's done by the Rand Corporation. Now, as you'll know, the Rand Corporation is a sort of a right-wing ex-military think tank that spun off and all the rest of it. They're not exactly a bunch of bleeding heart lefties. And they did this paper where they said, if you just kept all the taxes where they were in 1980, all the regulations where they were, all the benefits where they are, what would have happened to the income distribution? And it turns out your average American would be $15,000 a year better off. Because the amount of money that trickled up rather than trickled down was, are you ready? $34 trillion over a 40-year period. Right? <laughs> now, you know, at the end of the day, people are like, oh, well, it's not just inequality, it's this, that. Yeah, but just start there, right? I mean, just think about the fact that, like, our class, the top 5%, the top 2%, the top 1%, has just vacuumed it all up forever, and then we got found out with the rise of populism, the election of Trump, Brexit, all the rest of it. We've tried to manage it in various ways. Boris talked about levelling up and did nothing about it. Uh, you've got the IRA, which in many ways is an attempt to basically, as Sullivan puts it, create a foreign policy for the middle class. In other words, no more trade agreements that benefit corporations. How about trade that benefits workers? So there is an acknowledgement of exactly this is the problem. But the question is, can you actually reverse 40 years of that trend? through policy in a couple of elections. Well, we'll see. Yeah, we see it now and then. It's astonishing. 40 years of basically hoovering right. up money and pushing it toward the top. Here, here's a way to think about this, Chris, right? This is the core of a new book that I'm going to write. So start in Alaska, go down through the Dakotas, go through Oklahoma, go to East Texas, take a left, go all the way through Louisiana, Alabama, etc., come back, end up in West Virginia. That is the absolute core of the Republican coalition, right? 
Now, back in the 1970s, one in five jobs was in the auto sector, and one in three jobs were in ancillary sectors like steel and all the rest of it, right? So where was the most prosperous part of the country? It was the Midwest. And it was expensive to make there. Firms had been moving south to get free of unions for a long time. And then along comes the shipping container and the IT revolution. China opens up, etc. And within 20 years, the richest part in the country just completely mm. collapses economically. Now, all the money then goes to the two coasts, as we spoke about earlier, except for those states. Why? Because what are those states have got? They've got two things, carbon and farming. Now, when the IRA comes along and says, we want to basically phase out all this carbon stuff because it's all bad, what you're doing is you're looking at North Dakota, where you've got the fracking industry, you're looking at Oklahoma or Kansas, where you've got agriculture, which is dependent upon nitrogen fertilizer, which is made from petroleum. You're looking at Louisiana, where you do the plastics and the cracking for ethylene, etc. right? And you're just saying to these guys, we're coming after you now. We're going to do to you what we did mm. in the Midwest. And they look at that and go, no, you're not. And this is why Southern Attorney Generals are suing companies over ESG regulations. This is why if they get back in, they will absolutely gut the IRA. Now, is this sort of like long-term disastrous for America if they do that, both in terms of climate and in terms of its like overall power? Yes. If the United States goes on a 10-year pro-carbon binge if Trump wins, because the return on investment in carbon sectors will be enormous if he gets back in, then yeah, we'll have 10 years of like amazing growth, etc. But the rest of the world is going to totally move ahead on green technology and adaptation technology, and we're going to come back to the party with nothing to offer. And that's the point where I would start questioning the dollar then, but not now. But the consequences of this election are going to be absolutely massive. Do not underestimate it. ESG, remind us. And, and keep working on that book. Uh, Economic, Social and Governance, their UN criteria that were invented, I think, 2011, to basically take toothless corporate social responsibility and give it some teeth. This was then kind of like uh, weaponized, if you will, by BlackRock and some of the other asset managers, particularly an index producer called MSCI that was bought by BlackRock, who then basically start mm. rating firms for the impact of the environment on firms, so-called ESG ratings, which then allows you to put together ETFs and other products where you can buy, rather than socially conscious, environmentally conscious firms. The Southern AGs and other parties and the Republicans are, of course, saying, well, this just discriminates against our industries, which it does. So they are now suing and bringing in anti-boycott legislation to make sure that you can't do that. So basically, they're doing to ESG what they did to critical race theory, and this is just round one. If they win the election, they're just going to gut the whole thing. This is Mark Blythe, of course, translating the news we don't understand into the language of our beloved pub in Dundee. Mark, for the folks in the pub, explain the artificial intelligence gold rush. Not exactly NFTs, but it is the new Silicon Valley speculative craze. Uh, What's different about AI from an economic impact point of view? So, first of all, yes, it's a bubble, right? Look at the stocks of a firm called NVIDIA that uh, that make the uh, graphical CPU processors that are used for making these computers for the large language models. So, yes, it's the new bubble, text back, blah, 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 the rest of it. All right, a couple of issues. Number one, is this thing real? Yes, it is. Uh, Will it make a third of all people unemployed? We don't know, but it certainly could have a lot of impacts. I think these things tend to be overrated. But nonetheless, that's the case. Now, that's that's the obvious stuff. Let's do the unobvious stuff. 
had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with uh, a very, very senior sort of AI person who really knows this stuff. And I said, look, here's the deal. A couple of years ago now, three people won what's called the Turing Prize, which is kind of the Nobel Prize in computer science. And they won it for adaptive neural nets, which is the underpinning technology for all this stuff. And one of them just resigned from Google. And he said, I really regret my life's work. I think this is really bad. I think bad people are going to weaponize this. If you think you've got disinformation problems now, just wait until you get deep fakes that are completely convincing. This is going to be horrible. So there's the bad actors problem. Then you've got one of the other people who got the Turing Prize. He comes out and says, actually, this thing is, an, is a great line, a stochastic parrot. And what does he mean? He means it like it looks convincing because it's natural language processing. But essentially, it's a parrot. It's just learning words through frequency distributions right. and predictive algorithms. And in that regard, because it looks and sounds like something that a normal person says, we impute to that a humanity and an intelligence that simply isn't there. And then there's the third view, and this is the last person who's involved in this, and he said, I think this is Skynet. And the reason I think this is Skynet, as in Terminator, the whole thing, is because we don't know how it learns. It's the definition of a black box, and it Mm. seems to be getting exponentially smarter. So if you just keep telling yourself, oh, it's a stochastic parrot, don't worry about it, oh, it's only bad actors, don't worry about it, the black box keeps getting bigger. The inputs go in, the outputs go out, the outputs get better and better, and we don't know why. You wouldn't know if this thing is Skynet until it's too late. And I said to this AI wizard, so so which one's true? And she said, probably all three. Oh, my Lord. Because it's absolutely true that we don't know if it's Skynet until it's too late. But I don't think it is Skynet because it is a stochastic parrot. We're just imputing all this stuff into it because we don't know how it really works. But because we don't know really how it works, you have to account for the tail risk that it could actually become self-aware, even if that probability is extraordinarily low. The one thing we can bank on is that bad people are going to do this, and it's going to have a huge effect on social trust in the foundations of politics right across the world. So there you go. That's what's going to happen, mate. Okay, we stay worried. Going back, crediting you from a year ago, you told us about Isabella Weber, or Weber, a, yeah. a year before the New Yorker magazine and Lord Keynes's friend Zachary Carter wrote her up. She's the economist at the University of Massachusetts who got trashed by the big names in her profession and yours, like Paul Krugman and others, for urging selective price controls to break inflation. I think of John Kenneth Galbraith, who had the job of price control in World War II, and it seemed to work. Is Isabella Weber vindicated by now? Should we be doing sort of ad hoc, a la carte price controls? Well, they are. I mean, Germany did it with uh, fuel prices. She went over to Germany and did a big commission and set all that up, and it's actually helped the inflation rate trend down exactly as predicted. The thing about price controls is they'll work so long as they're mandatory. But then what you're doing is you're kind of suspending the market. And there's always this idea that then the black market emerges and so on and so forth. And that might be true in things like consumer goods under wartime. But with strategic commodities, harder for people to find alternative sources of liquid natural gas, for example. So, you know, there is a case for this and they they have been used and they're actually now kind of normalized. What I think is especially interesting about it is the reaction to her saying this in The Guardian and the reaction on Twitter was, essentially to touch a kind of third rail of economics. There's a settled story of the 1970s. It was all about money. 
There was too much money chasing too few goods, and that was it. And that's why price controls wouldn't work, because price controls don't do anything about that problem. But the thing is, if you actually look at what really happened in the 1970s, an awful lot of what happened in the 70s was very similar to what's happening now. You had oil shocks, two of them, big ones, right? 1974 and 1979. You had two failed harvests in the Soviet Union and Canada and the United States prior to that. Prior to that, you incorporated a huge number of people, particularly women and minorities, into the U.S. labor market. But it didn't make the price of labor cheaper because there were so many people tied down in Vietnam that you had over full employment. And that meant you couldn't basically continue to pay high wages driven by productivity. Inflation starts to get out of control. And the whole thing lasts about 10 years in terms of these temporary shocks. In terms of price controls, Nixon tried them. When he put them on and made them mandatory, it pissed a lot of people off, but it actually did bring down inflation. Then when he made them voluntary, everyone ignored them and inflation went ratchet up because of the sort of the demand that had been held back. So there's a particular story of the 70s that you could then say, well, let's think about now. What happened? Well, you had this global pandemic, you had all these supply chains and just in time, etc. And then it all ended and broke. China went into lockdown, the supply chains goofed up, you couldn't get anything. People were stuck at home, they bought too many consumer goods, they had a lot of credit because we financialized the economy, so the money was in there, but it wasn't actually being the stimulus checks. Fun fact about the stimulus checks, if you look at the survey of consumers' finances for 2021, you'll find unprecedented repayments of credit card debt. That's right. where the stimulus went. It didn't really go into inflation at all. So, and then think about then Ukraine, right? Think about what happens to energy markets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And guess what? Once those shocks begin to dissipate, inflation starts to trend down. So, to me, what's really interesting about Isabella's whole thing isn't really the price control story. It's the fact that she challenged a kind of shibbolistic or sort of uh, how can I put it, religious understanding of the way the economy should work, and she was rounded out as a heretic. But in fact, she's right, because if you look at the 70s in that light and you look at it now, why would interest rate increases do anything about this stuff? It's exactly the wrong tool, and that's what we seem to be finding out now as well. She seemed also to be challenging the high priests of the Fed and Fed thinking that it's all monetary policy that we've got, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're facing a, a large increase in energy prices and what you've done is you privatize your energy markets and you've got profit-seeking companies that basically have to cover their costs and their costs have gone through the roof, your end consumer is going to end up paying thousands of dollars extra. That's the structures that we built. Of course, that's going to show up in price increases. But is interest rate increases making money more expensive so that you slow down the economy, the solution to that? Mm. Or is it basically to cap the prices that are causing the problem and then push that problem out to the side so the inflation trends down and then you work on the supply side. It would seem pretty straightforward, uncontroversial, but yeah. it wasn't. She got absolutely murdered. I think we get it. I mean, speaking of inflation, do we blame the Fed for extending free money called quantitative easing past the original deadline with the effect of enriching Silicon Valley, for one thing, also creating a private stock market for the elite? And causing this scandalous inflation. Um, I'm not saying it feeds directly into inflation. I mean, I'm much more sort of on the, it's the COVID shock plus the Ukraine shock. But it certainly didn't help. I mean, it was free money for a decade. Let's think of what that gave us, apart from all the stuff that you just mentioned, Chris, okay. right? It gave us SPACs. Remember those? NFTs. Yes. It gave us this entire crypto industry that was based on nothing but bullshit and free money. 
there were a bunch of Ponzi schemes, right? Now, the thing about it is, if you go, I've got, I did a slide the other week, and it shows the Fed's interest rate hikes, this unprecedented hike from zero to like 5.5, right? And then if you put that on a 40-year scale, you can hardly see it. And it's not even that high. During the 1980s, we had 8% interest. During the early, early 1990s, we had 6% interest. We always have positive real rates. That's normal. It's just that we had this 10-year period where they were just pushing money in the system constantly. And all that was happening was asset prices were going up. Inequality was rising on the back of it. Hmm. And basically, we were you know, pumping up the, the financial markets and other markets, of which basically the returns again went to the top. So yeah, they did do it too long. Did it lead to inflation? I'm not really sure that's the one you want to focus on. <laughs> well, it's there in our face. It's still rampant. Our producer, Mary McGrath, you know her well. She bought her daughter mm-hmm. a package of six rolls of paper towels in Manhattan. Want to guess what it cost? Six rolls? $40. So that's price gouging. I mean, where did you buy it? The only bodega that was open at 2 a.m.? I mean, you know, come on. There's no reason for that to be true. It's not true anywhere else. Um, No, I mean, a huge part of this is profit-driven inflation. I mean, this is what Isabella actually really focuses on. And her paper's really persuasive. It says the following. Look, it's not that businessmen get together in a smoke-filled room and, you know, decide to raise prices. What happens is you're hit with a big shock. Your inputs are going up. Everybody's inputs are going up. So you all tell each other the following story. Oh, my stuff's got more expensive. I'm just going to have to basically push prices up. Well, because you know everybody else is pushing prices up, that allows you to push prices up. And then everybody pushes prices up. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, which allows people to continue to push prices up. When you're looking at markets in the US that are incredibly concentrated, only two or three firms effectively dominate them, this is what you end up with. And we, we just never talk about this. Corporate profits for the past five years have never been higher. Now, if inflation is such a terrible scourge, those margins should be being reduced because obviously there's only so much the consumer can pay for. But if you have highly concentrated industries, think breakfast cereal where like two companies make the entire breakfast cereal aisle, paper products is like three companies dominate the whole sector. Yeah, they're going to rip you a new one for a toilet roll. Absolutely, because they can. Now, is this because of like, you know, the stimulus checks from two years ago? Oh, give me a break. This is profit driven completely. Got it. You keep alluding to Ukraine. I want to focus on it. Who is the cold eyed political economist who's keeping a scorecard on the effects of the Ukraine war, which goes on and on? The effects past the horrific Ukrainian casualties, the burden of economic sanctions, the price of energy, Russian and otherwise, the impact, especially on European incomes and businesses, starting with Germany. We don't read enough, we don't know enough about this as a a phenomenon in our economic history. Well, I mean, somebody I think that has a great view on this is a uh, political economist at Cambridge called Helen Thompson. I advise everybody to read her book, Disorder, Hard Times for the 21st Century. And her basic point is this. Oil matters. We only think about it when we have moments of crisis, but the entire global economy runs on oil. The United States is now, because of fracking, a net oil exporter. 
So it doesn't really matter for us to a certain extent. What that also does is it frees us to a certain extent from Saudi dependence. But the problem with Europe is Europe never had its own supply. The, the North Sea was too small and too late to be basically the equivalent of the Texas Basin. So they've always had to import, which meant they've been dependent upon the Middle East, which meant that all the political volatility and turmoil in the Middle East has been much more important to them. But they're not powerful enough in any way to secure those supplies for themselves. So you've got a kind of incomplete promise from the US that we'll keep you going because you're our allies on an area of the world that we really don't control. And since the Iranian revolution, we definitely don't control. Uh, we can look after ourselves. So, you know, you stick with us, we'll look after you. So think about what happened with the Ukraine war, right? Regardless of who blew up the pipeline, forget that, right? Forget that story, right? You're not going back to Russia now. That one's done. So there's no more Russian gas. How is Europe getting pumped up? It's getting pumped up through liquid national gas exports from the United States. So basically, we are the people that are now fueling Europe because we've ended the Russian dependency. So you put sanctions on Russia, there's no more gas exports, what do they do? They get naturally much tighter in bed with China. So you can see how this is basically splintering the world, you know, even more along those lines as we go forward. So I think that her book, Disorder, is a really good sort of guide to, to looking at this. As for where this all trends long term, it all ends with the 2024 election. If the Republicans come back in, Ukraine's stuffed. Trump's not going to bankroll this stuff. The, the Biden sort of like Sullivan axis, the whole transatlanticism's back, all the rest of it, all the stuff we do in the Europeans, it's incredibly fragile. It's totally revisable to one election. Remember Trump. Trump wanted to privatize NATO, right? Trump doesn't give a crap about this stuff. Who is Trump actually most comfortable with? Other carbon autocrats. He's quite fine with Putin. He loves MBS, mm. right? He's an entirely different creature. So if he wins again, the burden of supporting Ukraine is going to fall entirely on the Europeans because the Americans will not do it anymore. They'll just withdraw. And at that point in time, they're, they're completely vulnerable because the Europeans will not back them up. So they have to win in this offensive now everything they want and solidify it and then try and get a peace treaty out of this. Because if it goes to 2024 and the Democrats don't win, all of that American money and supplies stops. More to the point, even if they continue, they're running out of people. There's only so many times you can take a, a population that's been absolutely traumatized and continue to put every generation into battle, right? You know, this is the old critique of we'll fight them to the last Ukrainian. Absolutely. But, Mark, suppose Trump doesn't get in. What economic pressure, what consideration of the economic damages is going to change the American policy of sending more and more weapons, more and more Ukrainian offensives, more and more frustration of the. But can you? Is that is that going to do it? Is that going to win it? I mean, we just keep we just keep throwing in more and more material and, and more and more destruction. I don't know. I don't know how this stuff plays. I don't know how this stuff plays out, Chris. I honestly think most people who talk about this stuff don't really know what they're talking about because if there's one uncertainty in the world, it's how wars play out. Let's think about Operation Desert Storm, right? Let's think about Mission Accomplished. Let's think about Afghanistan. If you'd actually known the outcomes to any of those things, you would never have tried them in the first place, and yet we spent 20 years doing it. So the only thing I know about Ukraine is that anybody projecting this is how it's going to play out is probably wrong. Big picture, Mark. What does it tell you that Jennifer Harris, who's been on Joe Biden's staff forever, tweeted out a photo of a tattoo that said, Death to Neoliberalism. 
What does it mean, the role of markets? People put silly stuff on tattoos all, all the time. I don't think that should be regarded as like authority of political statements. Um, what does it mean? It means that basically the elites in this country and other countries have realized that basically just giving it all up to the top 5% for the past 40 years has to come to an end, particularly in a moment of climate crisis, because if you don't start raising taxes on corporations and where the money is and start investing properly in mitigation and adaptation technology, then we're in beyond serious trouble. That's what it means. So if neoliberalism meant anything, it basically meant privatize, deregulate, integrate, globalize. All of those things are under pressure now. None of them are actually policy de jour almost anywhere. But the question becomes, how do you rebuild all that state capacity to do this stuff when you've spent the past 40 years getting the state out of the way? Because mm. as Ronald Reagan famously said, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. <laughs> and you've now just spent 40 years dismantling the state. So, you know, that's what's really insightful here, not sort of anybody's, you know, post-neoliberal agendas or ideas or whatever, etc. It's an economic regime that ran its course. It's now running into like the headwinds of climate change, geopolitical change, and generational change, and it's on its way out. The precise forms of the new thing cannot be seen yet, but the morbid symptoms of the old regime are all too easy to see. Interesting. What does it tell you, finally, that stock prices seem to be saying that the bear market has been scared away and that the trend of stock prices is up again? Well, there's a huge amount of money in the stock market, and there has been for a while now. Uh, over the past 10 years, if I get these figures right, the U.S. economy has grown by 40%, uh, whereas the stock market's grown by 270%. Mm. Around 70% of that growth has been driven by basically about six or seven stocks. So the stock market as a whole has just been dragged up by a tech bubble, which now, because of AI, we're about to prolong. Nothing more to see. Move along, move along. Interesting. Always have to ask you, Mark, you came from Scotland. You have wondered over the last 40 years, is it time to go to some other place, like a small country <laughs> led by a woman? Where do you dream of living nowadays? Well, the small country led by women is no longer led by a woman, and she's currently helping the police with their inquiries over corruption in the party. <laughs> so... Uh, Watch out for that one. Uh, it's funny that one party rule, right? I mean, if you basically are Putin and it really is just a brutal dictatorship where you murder your own citizens, it's still the same problem if you have a much more democratic version of this because after like three terms or more, the rot settles in. The really good people that you had have retired, have moved on. It becomes a sinecure. It becomes a safe job. You don't really have to respond to any constituent demands because you're the only game in town. And, you know, just basically having one party all the time is never a good idea. And this is why China's turned back to the party and the cult of Xi is really, really harmful for what they've been doing for the past 20 years. But... We'll see how it goes. In terms of me going anywhere else, I don't know. I'll see how it goes. If uh, Trump gets back in and the Republicans get back in and he is denied again, right? I mean, if this guy's in jail, I mean, think about this one, Chris, right? Imagine if this guy actually goes to jail. There's nothing in the Constitution that says he can't be president from jail. But I'm sure that they find a way to block him from actually doing that. Or if not, how do you run a country from jail? Does he pardon himself? 
What does that do to stability in the United States in this highly polarized society where one side of this country sends him to jail to stop him being president and the other side of society is so angry they basically want to jailbreak him and then hold us all accountable for it? That's what we're heading towards. Now, at that point in time, that's when I'm going to start thinking about where I want to be. We need you here, Mark. That's one. Second, we need your book that you're writing. Keep doing it. And tell us the title. The title's going to be something along the lines of, <laughs> appropriately, Precipice 2025 Carbon Politics and the Most Important Election in American History. So we'll see how it goes. Mark Blythe, we're so grateful to have your straight talk. Whether we disagree or not, you clarify our confusion. Thank you, Mark. Always a pleasure, Chris. 